Welcome to episode 71 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm a New York Times bestselling author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today's archetype is going to be the heist. (laughs) Yeah, this should be a fun one for us, because we both like heist stories. Mm -hmm. Although, I don't know, do you think this is... Do you think this is an archetype, or is this more of, like, a plot-type construction? Yeah, this is a plot. I mean, I think our whole summer of archetypes has really just been (laughs) not necessarily about archetypes at all, (laughs) kind of depending on the episode and and the tangents that we take on it. Um, So I don't think that the heist as a story is necessarily an archetype. I think there are probably archetypes within the heist story um when we kind of break down the crew members i'm sure we'll hit into some archetypes there but i think you're right that it's more of a plot structure or a plot you know outline what do you think characterizes a heist structure in terms of a story as opposed to any other quest i think that Inherent to the heist is um, that with a quest, you're kind of, I think, taking something that belongs to you, whether you're in search of something mystical that's destined to be yours or something that's rightfully yours or, you know, something that only you could find. There's some kind of a um, when you're on a quest for something there's the sense that you're destined for it. It belongs to you in a uniquely personal way with a heist story. You're taking something that does not belong to you and you want it for whatever reason. I feel like there's an element of deception in a heist or Mm -hmm. rather that the, that getting whatever the thing is that you need to do requires some sort of deception and not Mm -hmm. that quests don't require deceptions either because like, I think, I think a quest, you are, I think a quest, I, I would say you are doing it for a, a noble purpose, for the lack Mm -hmm. of a better word. Like Frodo's quest to destroy the one ring is a noble purpose. Like he's doing it because, you know, they need to save Middle Earth or, uh, like, or the stories like of the Knights of the Round Table where you have the quest for the Holy Grail. Not necessarily that it's totally noble, but it's sort of like divinely or supernaturally placed upon them that they need to find this to unite the kingdom, that kind of a thing. Yeah, heists are petty. (laughs) (laughs) Because heists are petty because it's usually not about the actual thing. It's almost never about the actual object that people want to steal. It's everything surrounding that it's i want to steal it to get back at the person who is possessing it right now i want to steal it to impress someone else i want to steal it it's never about the specific object it's about the prestige of that object it's about um you know the personal things tied up and around that object more so than anything else so i think quests are usually pretty personal and pretty petty most of the time 
Yeah, I think, because, like, I think the object of a heist, regardless of whether it's something that you're stealing or whether or not it's, like, some other deception or trickery that you have to pull off, um, I think that the heist, whatever that the object of the heist is, is usually symbolic of something. It's not in and of itself the object that's the point of the heist. The the heist will represent something like for you know, it will represent freedom. Like if they pull it off, they get enough money to do this, or you know, it means getting as Kelly said, like getting back at somebody, or it means something other than the like so it's a means to an end really emotionally for these characters. Yeah. And I also think that I mean what it's it's really it's a MacGuffin, right? It's something that cause I mean like quests can also have MacGuffins. Um where the object that is the object of the quest is ultimately not the end goal in itself. But generally for the quest, the end goal is the object. You know, you're going to mm-hmm. use that object or whatever it is you need to get is for this particular reason that you are setting out to get it, whereas heists, you're getting it, but it's for a different reason. Mm-hmm. There's always some ulterior reason. Yeah, And that's why I think when they're well done, I think they're really emotionally satisfying stories because it's about so much more than just the object or the deception. It's about, you know, that greater purpose and symbolism behind it. Do you think that by necessity, the heist is an ensemble story? I think so. Yes. I think, I think you can have stories about, you know, single thieves stealing something, um, or, you know, performing some other act of deception, but, I don't think that that is a heist. I think for a heist, you need a crew. Yeah, I mean, like, so the first, I would say the first thief, the thief by Megan Whalen Turner in the Queen's Thief series, it's not a heist because the point is that Eugenides, or Jen, the character, has to steal something from this temple. But I would not categorize it as a heist story. Um, he has to steal it for a particular reason and you find out later what the reason is. And then I felt completely betrayed because I felt like I've been lied to the entire book. Um, but that aside, I don't, because I think it's still really about Jen, even though he has other people like Mm -hmm. on this quest to get this object, um, and he has to steal it. Even it's, I mean, like I have to give Megan Whalen Turner credit because every single one of her books always has a twist mm-hmm. and they're masterfully done even even if I felt betrayed by Jen almost every single twist in her books has made me reevaluate the entire book I was reading and they're not really mysteries like they're not there's not like something that you have to figure out there's not some you know like crime that has to be solved but there is a twist mm-hmm. in every single one where a character reveals a piece of information that absolutely changes, not absolutely, but adds whole other color or dimension to mm-hmm. the book that you were reading. Sort of like The Sixth Sense, right? Like, once you know the twist right. of The Sixth Sense, it does change how you've seen the rest of the movie. And that's kind of the way a lot of the twists function in Megan Whalen Turner's books. Um, or, I'm trying to think, there was another example off the top of my head where I thought it was like a singular quest. Or like Aladdin, like the beginning of Aladdin is basically like they need they send him in to get something. 
Right. And he's really a tool, and it's not necessarily a heist narrative. I wouldn't yeah. call it a heist narrative, anyway. I think the thing that makes it a heist, again, is so we've got this idea of some kind of deception or something that needs to be stolen. Um, and, and we usually have like our leader, right? The, the, the leader of the gang of the crew, he or she is usually the person with the personal investment in the heist. It's usually all driven by that one person's personal, petty, emotional need for, getting this object or completing this deception. But usually the job is bigger than just that one person or outstrips the skills that that one person has. And so they need to assemble a team of specialists to bring them together in service of their greater emotional goal. And that's, I think, what is what is key to the heist is that it's also not just any group of people trying to steal a thing. People need to have unique special specific roles within the group that they all bring something different to the table. And so that together they form a functional team that can achieve this goal. But if they were apart, none of them could complete the, the full mission or the full heist on their own. And there's, unlike the quest, which is generally for noble reasons, even if there are multiple parties in your quest, again, like if we go back to Lord of the Rings, there's a fellowship, right? And they're all like, we're going to lend you this skill or our companionship or whatever to help you in your quest. But in the heist, even though this crew is being or gang is being assembled by the leader, there always is something in it for every mm-hmm. member of this team. Like they get something personal out of participating in this heist, even if it's a payoff, mm-hmm. um, you know, like the end, there's a monetary reward that they all mm-hmm. partake in or whatever. But there's always a, as, as Kelly said, it is a petty, often a very petty thing. They're just like, I just want money. Like that's yep. kind of what it comes down to. I just yep. want money. <laughs> so what makes a heist narrative emotionally satisfying for you? I think I love, so for, so this is like personally satisfying for me specifically, and I don't know if this will be everybody's jam, but like for me personally, I love, um, a lot of what they call process porn for one, which is Mm -hmm. how, how people do things, watching Mm -hmm. experts do whatever they're experts at. It doesn't matter what it is they're doing. I just become obsessed with anybody who has a skill that is that they have honed, um, you know, so like watching people deal cards, watching people assemble like bombs, watching hackers hack on a computer. Like it doesn't matter what they're doing. If they're an expert in their field, I love watching them do that. I find it very attractive, um, and really fascinating. So part of it is that for me, that a big part of heist stories is watching each character do something at which they excel and usually run up against some challenges that they have to overcome, um, you know, in the, in the pursuit of that. So that's part of it. Um, the other part of it, I think for me is that there is this dual layer to the story that most heists are personal. It's not just about, um, you know, so like, okay, so (laughs) I can't believe I'm going to say this, but one 
heist-like movie that I really deeply love is Gone in 60 Seconds. I love that movie. I love that movie. It's so good. So for those of you who don't know, quick rundown, Gone in 60 Seconds stars Nicolas Cage and Angelina Jolie, among many other great actors, Giovanni Ribisi and a whole bunch of others. Um, And Nicolas Cage is a former uh, car thief car boost they call him in the movie and so he's been living a clean life for the last couple of years he gets pulled in for one last job one last job is a big hallmark of uh, heist stories yeah too. usually it's like not this is the one that them, will change but... our fortunes it will change, yep. turn everything around and yeah yep. he gets pulled into one last job because his kid brother screws up and gets in with the wrong people and is on the hook for stealing 50 cars in one night And so he has to assemble a team to steal 50 high-class, very expensive cars in less than 24 hours. Um, And so it's just, it's just a great, uh, it's just a great movie, but it's personal for him. It's not just, oh, I want to go out and steal 50 cars because it's all tied up in his relationship with his brother and that relationship unfolds over the course of the movie and that I think is really interesting I think that heists the heist structure or the the heist is like the gimmick with which we can tell a lot of really interesting stories about people because I think of what we said before about how it's always about something more personal than the actual object or the thing going on you know Danny Ocean is not just trying to rob this casino just because he's trying to rob the casino of the man that his ex-wife is now going to marry and he wants to break them up and win her back like he has personal motivations for that so we don't necessarily care about him robbing the casino we care about him getting his wife back um but it works on both levels and that's what i think is so emotionally satisfying about those stories for me yeah i would actually agree with kelly that uh, that process porn is kind of a big thing for me too like i just love like when people tell me how to do things Mm -hmm. like part of the reason i actually enjoyed when i was younger reading the sherlock holmes books uh, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was that the, in every book there's examples of deductive reasoning where he's basically like taking this bit of information and then telling you what he got from it and why which I always loved I loved that kind of thing and there's like a series of smaller um, books like that by John L- Donald J. Sobel I believe is the author but he wrote all the Encyclopedia Brown books which is another set of books that I really mm-hmm. loved as a child and he also wrote a series of books called Two Minute Mysteries that I also really liked um, I'm actually really terrible at them I'm really good at spotting twists but actually terrible at deductive reasoning um, but it's I, I still love those so I like the process part of it but I think for me what makes a heist narrative satisfying emotionally is that there is for me there has to be an element of found family. Mm. Now, found family is a narrative I like anyway. anyway. It doesn't matter what genre it is. Um, it could be anything. Like, anything could be a found family narrative, and if it's done well, I love it. But I think for me, heist narratives work really well when each member of the crew or team functions as a family and moreover I'm going to bring out uh, Six of Crows as an example mm-hmm, which is it definitely has a heist narrative to it and what I love about Six of Crows is if you actually think about 
the different members of the gang, of, of the dregs. Uh, Kaz is the leader, of course, and he brings everybody in for, for particular reasons and whatnot. But ultimately, they all sort of function as parts of Kaz that he does not allow himself to either feel or indulge in or... So they kind of complete him in a way. Like, they mm-hmm. sort of help him become a whole person. Um, and, of course, they have relationships with each other that they like, and they work, and they play off well in teams or, you know... And so there's... I mean, Lee is a wonderful writer anyway. She's brilliant. But I think what I do love about Six of Crows is that, like, yes, there is a heist that they have to partake of, and then, of course, there's a, a kind of a bigger twist or a, a twist that makes everything slightly bigger in the world. So the second book is then sort of letting all of the the pieces play out to a conclusion. Because you find out, initially you think, okay, they have to partake in this heist. They're going to get a huge payout from this heist. And with that, each member of the crew can fulfill whatever personal things that they need. Like Jasper needs to pay off his gambling debts. And Nej wants to take it and, you know, finally earn her freedom and go off. Um, you know, and so there's like every every member has a personal reason. And but they all get more personal in a different way in the second book. And watching all those pieces play out is brilliant. And also you find out, you know, you think initially that Kaz's reason for taking this is like, oh, you know, it's a huge bit of money and I want to mm-hmm. do it. And then you realize that there is an ulterior motive for Kaz as well for doing this whole thing. And every single, there's always another step mm-hmm. or as something that he's thinking of because he's always working on like two or three different levels at once. And so each thing is playing out. It's brilliant. So, if, I mean, I probably don't have to tell you guys to read the Six Crows duology because you probably already have um, since it's a very successful series but I think that to me is extremely emotionally satisfying that was very very emotionally satisfying just like also because the thing that heists have to do plot wise in addition to emotionally having for me I like the found family narrative but what they need to do plot wise is basically you know they have to set up the dominoes but make sure all the dominoes get knocked over you know, the the payoff has to be as good, if not better, than the setup, I think. And that's very difficult yeah. to do, um, particularly for pantsers like myself. We're really good at setting stuff up, but we're really terrible at paying them off. So um, so for me, I, I think it, it, it scratches that itch in my mind when I read it, because this is not something that I do easily or well. Mm-hmm. So... Um, anything else about heist narratives? Like, what makes them different from, say, like, Ocean's Eleven? Like, how would you say that difference differs from something like... <laughs> and it used two terrible movies that I still love. Um, the Lara Croft movies? The Tomb Raider movies? Oh, I never saw those. Oh, did you watch National Treasure, which is another one that I like terrible, but I really love? I, I did, but only, like, once in so long ago. But I think I remember enough of that one. I'm a huge, huge fan, and I and I I don't know what genre you would call these um, because they're not a heist, but like like the Da Vinci Code or Indiana Jones. Yeah, yeah, they're like I I see what you mean. What would you call those types of things? Um, it's 
Yeah, it's like Indiana Jones is like what, like an action adventure quest mystery? I don't know. <laughs> it really is adventure, maybe because yeah. I, I feel like, it, like, or the Mummy, which is the the one with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, not not the one mm. with Tom Cruise. Um, but like the Mummy movies, the first two. I just I have to keep qualifying these, but um, they I I enjoy them, and they're basically adventure you know there's always some sort of not always but there's often some sort of like conspiracy angle Mm -hmm. like they are in national treasure or uh the da vinci code books Mm -hmm. um and there's and getting and the adventure is kind of the the point of it maybe Mm -hmm. um i don't know i think adventure is a little bit hard to do not even that it's hard to do I don't think it's very popular anymore. Hmm. What's the last adventure movie you can think of? Because, like, even the Mummy remake is not what I would classify yeah. as an adventure film. Like, I have not seen it based on the trailers with the one with Tom Cruise. It just looks like kind of like a straight-up horror thriller. Which is fine, um, but it's not, like, fun. <laughs> I feel like yeah. that, that's kind of a defining element for me, is, like, these are fun movies. Like, these are, you know, you've got, particularly in the, the Brendan Fraser version of The Mummy, it's like, oh, no, they accidentally set off this ancient curse, and this mummy comes back to life, and they have to destroy it. And, you know, you've got, like, really kind of, silly scenes where he's fighting like CGI zombies and you know it's, <laughs> it's fun and then, like and it's kind of cheesy yeah. um like National Treasure is very cheesy it's like not mm-hmm. very good but I liked it anyway because I like that genre there's a lot. like a lot of Nicolas Cage movies that I do enjoy and I don't know <laughs> what that says about me <laughs> because like okay so um, Gone in 60 Seconds, which I already mentioned. Yeah, National I love Treasure. Um, what's the other one? Um, the Rock um, with oh, Sean yeah. Connery. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love that one. I love Matchstick Men, which this is an, an example of kind of what you were talking about before, about the solo thief or the solo con man. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually I feel like those stories are very different because I do think you're right that heists have this aspect of found family. And I think the story of the con men, the emotional story is usually he's a loner and usually it's about one other person trying to break into the con man's, you know, vulnerable, like get through to, through their protective layers. So like you've got Nicholas Cage and Max match sick men, um, Sawyer and lost, you know, is the loner and only Kate can get through and, and then later Juliet and then, you know, whatever. But like, I think that's a very, that's a much more isolated story and it's about piercing that isolation. Whereas mm-hmm. I think the, how the heist does rely more on the camaraderie and the found family, um, and the genuine kind of like affection that these people have for one another. Yeah. I do like a lot of Nick Cage movies myself now that I think about it. They're not good, but I like them. The Mm. only one I would genuinely say is probably an actual good movie is... um, He was in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Was that one? Or am I thinking of somebody else who was in that one? 
I don't know. I didn't see that. Um, but like every other movie of his is not good, but they're enjoyably not good. So like mm. <laughs> Con Air. Oh yeah. <laughs> Con Air, man. Um, um, there's, I had one, I had another, oh, um, The Wicker Man. I didn't see that. <laughs> it's so bad. And the original is so good. But his remake is so bad. But I enjoy it anyway. Because, I think partially because it's bad. Like, it's because, yeah. and it's, he, he kind, nah, I don't know if he knows what movie he's in. But I, I, it's just enjoyably bad. It's basically what it comes down to. So there are a lot of Nick Cage movies that I myself really like. <laughs> um, so when it comes to like con men or adventure or heist narratives, there's always that kind of element of, I think for heist in particular, there's always an element of deception. I don't think the adventure necessarily has an element of deception right. to it. Um, but like the con man narrative and, and the highest narrative definitely have um, an element of deception to them. Now, when we think about, because we're talking about sort of archetypal narratives, and if, it, if the deception is kind of part of the archetypal narrative, or that there's a twist, or that there's some other, ulter- that, that there's ulterior motives, basically, mm-hmm. for most of these most of these narratives or most of these characters in these narratives. What about things like thrillers or mysteries? Like there are genres, certainly, because we talked about this in our genre podcasts, mm-hmm. but would they fall into archetypal narratives in some way or are they, you know what I mean? Like you would, I, you know, like technically the Da Vinci Code books are, or like the Dan Brown books are classified as thriller. Yeah. But I don't necessarily think I would call it that an archetypal narrative. No, I mean, I think some in some mysteries you can have elements like that that are archetypal. So like the hard-boiled detective in noir and the femme fatale, you know, those are pretty archetypal characters in that sort of a setting and that kind of a story. You know, you've got, like, the the iconic scene in every book and every movie and every everything that's noir with the, you know, the hard-boiled detective in his office, and he sees the silhouette of the femme fatale through the glass of his door before she walks in, you know. So I think there are some, some archetypal characters or things within mysteries. Um, you know, back when we were talking about genre two, we were also talking about different types of mysteries, and I think... If you go into the different sorts of mysteries, you can find similar things. You know, some of them are like there's a locked door mystery. Something happens and everybody is in the same place and it has to be one of those people and they're going to be in wherever they are until they find out who among them it was. Um, You know, there's, you know, cozy mysteries. A lot of the hallmarks of those are that they're usually really comedic and funny. Um, so you can kind of have archetypal things within those as well. Um, but I mean, I'm looking broader because if, if deception is really the core element that ties kind of like the lone thief or Mm -hmm. the heist. And I do still kind of categorize adventure stories a little bit into this family of, of story, even Mm -hmm. though there really isn't an element of 
deception necessarily mm. in in adventure narratives. Um, although, like in in the Rachel Weiss mummy, she steals the book and reads aloud from it, which sets off the chain of events. And the opening scene of Raiders is, of course, pretty famous because he's got like the bag of sand and like the golden object that he's trying to take, and it ends up being booby trapped. So I think. It's not that the characters are actively... There is, like, an active element of deception, but I Mm. feel like it's somehow related, which is why I I did ask about thrillers, because I guess that the the difference in a lot of mysteries and thrillers is that your protagonist is not the one doing the deceiving, Mm. ordinarily, except for, like, that one Agatha Christie book where the narrator did it. Right. Um, Yeah. Well, in thrillers, right, the protagonist is the one being pursued they're the next potential victim well there's like because like i'm thinking of gone girl mm. which is categorized as a thriller um yeah and deception really is the core of that entire book um yes and like you can categorize that into a lot of different archetypal narratives like it's a narrative about uh, marital strife or whatever and it's like a portrait of you know a disaffect you know like dysfunctional modern day marriage or whatever um but it really is about deception and mm. ulterior motives so i don't know if it it belongs in this sort of family of of stories or i don't know i'm just kind of noodling aloud about it because i like a lot of the stories that we talk about archetypally um, we do talk a lot about fantasy narratives, obviously, mm-hmm. because, you know, it's easy for, like, particularly things like the chosen one or, like, the oppressed versus the oppressor. You, we often see those in genre books, and by genre I mean generally science fiction fantasy. Um, we did touch on some romance archetypes a bit, you know, with, and or, like, contemporary you know, mm-hmm. we kind of talked about that, but you know, it's like, what would you categorize something like mystery or thriller? And I guess it might depend on the mystery or thriller, possibly. Yeah. But I was, yeah. Gone Girl was the one I was thinking of. That I was like, would you? It's not a heist, but it's definitely about no. deception. It is definitely about deception. It's a very good book. I've. I wonder what it would be like on a reread. I'm kind of curious, but I never want to spend time with those characters ever again. <laughs> right? They're so horrible. Like they're, they're compellingly so horrible. They're compellingly awful. Like because I could not read that fast enough. I read it on oh, a yeah. plane, and I was like turning the fate pages so fast because I wanted to know basically how it all is going to to come yeah. together and fall apart, or you know, and. And I thought it was brilliant, and I closed the book, and I was like, I have no interest in ever spending time with these characters again. Yeah. Yeah. But from a craft standpoint, I think it would be interesting to reread. Mm-hmm. Probably. Ugh. <laughs> I don't know if you've read any other Gillian Flynn. I have not. Like, her stuff is dark. And I don't mean necessarily dark in content. I just mean, like, dark. All of her <laughs> characters are really just, not just terrible people, they're just, but they're, like, like downright horrible, awful, malicious, just terrible people. And it's compelling. Because it feels like she's the kind of person who, like, shines her flashlight in all the dark places of the soul. And it's just like, he's like, here it is. 
It's right here. <laughs> not going to try and sugarcoat it. Not going to try and make it. You know, like yeah. All of all of her books are like that, and so she's really hard to read for me because she's really good. But I also I just I want to I want to cleanse myself spiritually after having yes. read them. Yeah. <laughs> um, any sort of last thoughts on heists or deceptions or? Mm, not really. I mean, I I could talk about them forever because I really do love them heist books heist movies heist episodes of tv shows whatever i just i really love uh something about it really works for me so i could you know spend time going into dissecting all my favorite ones but i think in terms of like useful information for a podcast i think we've probably hit all my major points well i guess the question is now and it's a little bit related because we talked about how there's an element of found family often in in mm-hmm. heist because it sort of relies on an ensemble dynamic and of course you can have ensembles and all sorts of different stories. Um, but what do you, what what differentiates an ensemble book from one that simply has a large cast of characters? Like, for example, A a Song of Ice and Fire, which has, like, a cast of, like, Mm. bazillions now, so. Mm. I think an ensemble book, um, I think the characters are all tied to each other, not just in terms of, like, the plot stuff that they're all brought together to do, but, like you said, I think emotionally, I think there are emotional threads connecting everyone and those emotions don't always have to be positive um you know they can they can be tension there there can be um you know all kinds of emotions but i think that you know with big stories like um song of um fire and ice is ice and fire fire and ice it's ice and fire yeah ice and fire or like the one that we mentioned last week um two pillars of the earth which has a huge huge cast cast, yeah um but they're not all necessarily connected they're all connected in that everyone's narrative relates to the building of the cathedral but not everyone's narrative relates to each other and Mm -hmm. that i think is the main difference with ensembles um, as opposed to large casts, everyone relates to each other and not just to a common goal. And what would you say is the difference between a book that is ensemble based versus one that has a protagonist with a lot of side characters? I think ensembles by nature have to be given roughly equal weight. I think there usually always is like a main character or, you know, the person who shapes the narrative. Um, I think that's kind of, that's kind of unavoidable. You need to have some kind of driving direction. So usually there is one person that sticks out a little bit more, but um, I think, you know, whether we're rotating points of view or whether, you know, it's more of an omniscient narrator that's just spending time with everybody. Um, I think that, you know, when you have a hero and some sidekicks, you're paying less attention to the sidekicks except in as how they relate to the hero, um, and Mm -hmm. less, you know, their own, their own lives. And I think with ensembles, everybody's own interior life is important and gets weight as well as how they relate to the leader. 
All right. So that's those are our thoughts about ensembles and heists and deceptions. <laughs> Go watch um, some or read some. They're the best. Yeah. Well, let's. We can recommend a couple that we like that we think do these things well. Um, I mean, obviously, we talked about. I talked about reading way Six of Crows, which is probably yeah. the best example of a heist book I can think of. I honestly don't know if I can name others right now. The only one I can think of is kind of heist, not really, but sort of. Um, and it's Bringing Down the House, which is a memoir about um, a bunch of kids from Harvard who learned how to count cards and oh yeah it's the basis of the movie 21 yeah don't watch the movie the movie's dumb the book however is really really riveting um and fascinating and based on real people and their real experiences so that's also interesting yeah i can't really think of a book that has heists in them which is kind of interesting for me. Yeah. I feel like it's easier to do in a movie. Like it is much easier, I think, because you can get away with a lot of shorthand in the movie by just showing montages and clips of things, and you can't really do that in books. Um, so Yeah. Yeah. But, but I love heist movies, too. I love the Oceans movies, Oceans 11, Oceans 12, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I can't wait for the all-female remake that they're doing with Sandra Bullock, and I think Rihanna's in it, and... Um, a ton of amazing women. Very excited about that. There's those gone in 60 seconds, which I said, there's the one with Charlize Theron and Mark Wahlberg. What is that one? I own it. I've watched it like a million times. What is the name of this movie? I can't think of it. I can't think of it. Donald Sutherland, I think is Charlize, Charlize, I can't say her name now. I've tried too many times her dad. And, uh, there's a bunch of other people in it too. They're trying to, Oh, Ed Norton is the bad guy in that one. He has a really gross mustache. That one's good. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so yeah, lots of, lots of heist movies that are pretty great. All right, you're going to have to look up the name of this movie I so will, I can put it in the show notes, because otherwise I'm just going to be like, what on earth is this? I mean, it's about, like, it's pretty much like what it sounds like. It's not the greatest heist movie in the world, but it's pretty good. <laughs> I'll watch it. Uh... Yeah, I think heists are still fairly common. Um, again, I guess these would fall under more adventure, but like Mission Impossible movies, which mm. I used to really like that franchise. I have not seen like the past like three movies, but I I enjoy those. You know, I think that you have, you know, it's generally a, a character, but you kind of have this thing that you have to go do and you have to solve the, or there's a mission that they have to do and blah, blah, blah. So I, I enjoy those. Um, I don't. I, I, I mean, everyone does think of Ocean's Eleven, rightfully, because it is a very, very good heist movie. Um, I think there was recently one that was um, about magicians in Vegas. I think it was like, Now You See Me. Hmm. And then there's a sequel to it called I Now You See Me 2, which I thought was ridiculous because they could have said, Now You Don't. Like, why is that not the title of the oh, sequel? Oh, come on. Like, come on, people. Like, we're not that dumb. Like... Come on, Hollywood. We're not like the first one is called Now You See Me, and the second one should be called Now You Don't. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh goodness, that should be um, the the movie I was just talking about was the Italian Job. By the way, oh oh yes, okay. I was like, I've not seen it, but I know people really love the Italian Job, mm-hmm. mostly because yeah. I remember Eddie Izzard having this like long long stand up sketch mm-hmm. about it. <laughs> yeah, and also again, not a heist, but if we're going to be talking about cons and con movies and con things, also watch The Riches, which is an amazing, heartbreaking TV show starring Eddie Izzard and Minnie Driver, um, and then also uh, The Prestige which is an amazing movie. Have you seen The Prestige? I have seen The Prestige. You don't like it? There's th- there's things the, the thing is it's like I like it separately. I like the I like separate elements of The Prestige. <laughs> but but all together like, it doesn't all work. together it doesn't really hold up for me. Oh. Um I mean I I liked it. I enjoyed it. And it also came out the same time as the Ed Ed Norton movie that had a Kind of a similar premise. Yeah, there was another magician movie right around that time. It's called The Illusionist, and that one's mm. dull. It is boring. Like, so if you want like fun commercial, like good time, I would say watch The Prestige because that's you know it's got kind of twists and turns and like things that you don't see. And um, The Illusionist is just dull. Though <laughs> it is so boring. <laughs> but um, yeah, I do like separate elements of The Prestige, but not together. The Usual Suspects. How did we do a whole heist podcast oh and not talk about The Usual Suspects? That is an excellent movie. I just rewatched a- it a couple months ago. It's so good. It's so good. It, that is, that is in fact, a very, very good movie. So, all right, th- that's your homework if you guys are interested in, in writing uh, heist narratives or mm-hmm. deception or cons. Um, so I guess we can move on to what we are working on. Same old, same old. Yeah, I mean, I, I just basically, I've been extremely lazy this week. I still have not gotten my editorial letter, so I'm kind of just like, I feel like in a holding pattern. I'm just mm-hmm. kind of like waiting for my letter to come so I could like get back into work. Um, again, I can't really talk about my secret project, but, you know, I, I promise that when I'm allowed to announce it, I will. Um, but yeah, right now I'm kind of just like waiting for my editorial letter so I can get back into, uh, working on Shadow Song, but that's kind of, that's kind of it. Um, I am drawing more than I, you know, because right now I, what am I doing with my time? You know, I don't mm. go to my day job anymore, so what do I do with my time? I don't know <laughs> what I do with my time anymore. <laughs> I don't even watch a lot of television, so what am I doing with my time? I don't know. <laughs> uh, so what have you been reading? Um, nothing. No. I, I have made it my goal this month um, to read one non-work book. I was like that. That's I wrote it in my bullet journal. I was like, one of my personal goals is I have to read one published book that is not like a client manuscript or a submitted requested material uh, this month because it's been forever. Like I almost forget what it's like at this point because I've done so much reading and none of it is in book form at all. So I miss that. Yeah, I read The Cruel Prince by Holly Black. I loved it. <laughs> um, which it's funny because my book is about goblins, but I don't typically like fairies in fiction. Um, 
for multiple reasons. I'm, I, like, there were some fairy books written during the whole paranormal trend, um, of YA, and I'm just, I was never into supernatural or preternatural creatures. Like, I, I, you know, like, it's often why I'm not actually a reader of vampire fiction, even though people expect me to because I'm goth. I like everything vampire adjacent, um, but I don't particularly care about the emotional foibles or journeys or struggles of immortal or, you know, preternaturally beautiful non-humans. Like, I just don't care. It's not something that interests me. I would rather read about the human narrative. It's often Mm -hmm. like, you know, we, like Lord of the Rings, which was hugely influential for me as a child. Um, and I, a lot of my friends loved the elves and loved reading about the elves and I could care less about the elves. I was really interested about the men, like literally the race of men I found far more fascinating, um, to read about. And I've always been like that though. So, but I did read The Cruel Prince and Holly Black. I mean, she's a wonderful writer and she's really good at world building and everything like that. But I don't think I have been as obsessed with a book that has fairies in it (laughs) like this in a long time. Um, this book does not come out till January of 2018, so I do apologize, uh, because you guys won't be able to read it until then. Um, but I did read that and it was, I, oh, I really loved it. And, um, and I have another fairy book that I am making my way through, uh, which is An Enchantment of Ravens by, oh, I'm going to butcher her name. I think it's Margaret Roberson. Um, but this is about a young woman who, uh, is paint, who is an artist and she paints portraits for the Fae and of the Fae. Um, so I've just started that, um, because again, a lot of my friends really enjoyed it. So I decided I was going to also, this is, I'm sorry, you guys, this is also a galley. I'm like, I feel like I'm lording it all over. I have not. I, I apologize. I... Aside from Megan Whelan Turner, I don't think I've read a recently published book. Because in addition to the those galleys that I'm reading for, you know, for pleasure, I've also been reading stuff for blurbs, so a lot of this isn't out yet. It, it, this is a problem when you work in publishing, is that you talk about things and you're just like, I'm sorry, you guys can't put your hands on this yet. <laughs> My bad. Um, yeah, so th- that's that's what I've been reading. Um, any off many recommendations? Um, yes, <laughs> which is bizarre. Um, but I have been drinking this drink every morning, and it's amazing. Um, so I have recommitted recently to cooking. Um, I guess if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you may remember a time when I had said I love cooking and cooking is like my number one hobby back before I had a child. My husband and I used to cook for fun at length and make these like elaborate four hour, you know, meals on a Tuesday. Um, and then I had a child and then I was exhausted all the time and I never cooked anymore. And so now I am trying to get back into the habit of cooking, but not doing four hour meals. Um, and something that I'm trying really consciously to do is add greens into my diet because I don't eat them. Like I'm not 
I like salad, but I can't be bothered to make one for myself. It seems like it's too time-consuming to chop up all the stuff and put it in the, like, I don't know. I'll eat salads when I go out, but I don't ever go out because I don't have any money. And so (laughs) I don't eat greens ever. And so I have found this recipe um, for what's called uh, healing green broth is the name of the official recipe. It's essentially bone broth with a bunch of greens, some lemon, some salt, um, some herbs, and some butter and uh, some collagen powder and you put it in a blender and you blend it all and you drink it and it's delicious um like it's so delicious it's like drinking it's like it's like drinking herbs it's just like savory and hot and salty and herbaceous and it's just amazing and so I've been just adding that into my day and like I automatically get like three cups of greens in right off the bat because they're just all in the blender. <laughs> um, and I was doing it like when I started doing it, I was like, oh, this is like a thing that I'm going to do to like try to eat more green food and be healthy. And I was kind of doing it like reluctantly. And now I'm I, I feel like I'm addicted to it. Like I like get up in the morning and like I need this thing. And it's just a nice way to start my day. So if you go on Instagram or Twitter or anywhere on social media or Google and you look up hashtag healing green broth, you'll find the website. I think her name is Stephanie Meyer, not the <laughs> author of Twilight, unfortunately. Um, but just a woman from the Midwest named Stephanie Meyer who's come up with this thing. And, uh, and I love it. And it's become kind of a daily ritual for me, which I like because I've been trying to find more quiet moments of ritual in my life. Like I feel like my life has gotten very chaotic and disorganized and I was kind of looking for something, um, some kind of like daily routine I can have and, and just have moments of quiet and grab onto. And, and this has sort of become that for me. So yeah, I don't know if you feel like drinking a bunch of herbs, I highly recommend. (laughs) I mean, this is something that I would be interested in because like, I know a lot of people who make shakes, um, Mm like smoothies, not shakes. Um, but you know, like they put a bunch of greens in with like yogurt and fruit and I don't like sweets. So when you're like, it's savory. And I was like, I am more interested in that. And yeah, it's like, because, I mean, I like fruit. Don't get me wrong. I eat probably way more fruit than any, uh, like a normal human should. <laughs> but like, um, like oatmeal, which is one of my favorite things to have, but I eat savory oatmeal and Mm. people are always like why would you and I was like because to me oatmeal has a similar texture to congee um or congee I've actually never heard it pronounced in English in Korean we call it chuk um so and we've always and I that has always been savory for me so the idea of putting sugar or anything or honey or anything sweet into oatmeal just disgusts me um so (laughs) Um, so for me, I've always eaten savory oatmeal. So you'd like, oh, you know, I can blend a bunch of greens into like bone broth. It's like, ah, uh, that yeah. sounds like something that I would, I would do. Yeah. It's really good. And you can like, she has on her website, some suggestions of like combinations of herbs that go well with whatever, but like literally you can throw whatever in it. Um, you know, and I've just been doing chicken stock and arugula and, um, spinach and then basil and chives and whatever other herbs I have 
around and you put in either a little bit of butter or oil and uh, you some lemon to make it a little bit sour and salt and it's like salty herby sour like oh it's so good <laughs> it's really good it's um, like, a good blender is key because if you don't yeah. have a really strong blender you'll get like the stringy pulp so oh, it depends I just, just on, it depends on what greens it's like it depends it on does. what greens because sometimes like and they, it's the same thing when you make like fruit smoothies it depends mm. on what greens you put in there that like spinach doesn't actually blend very well yeah um, any like things like kale blends okay. Uh, things like chard, like Swiss chard, blends okay if it's kind of got a little bit more mm-hmm. crunch, I guess, to them. Because if it's kind of like a wilty lettuce, and it will not blend very well. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that does sound that does sound really good. Uh, yeah, so I can I'm email like, you the recipe if you want. Yeah, or just I make definitely. it up. Like, or you have to. <laughs> I mean, I do. I do experiment in the kitchen more now that I am home. Um, but I've also, I'm also extremely lazy about cooking. Like I, right before Kelly and I started recording, I, I was like, be kind of late. And I'm just like crunching away like a salad mix. <laughs> I mean, I do eat a lot of salad, um, because Trader Joe's has a particular salad mix that I love. It's called cruciferous crunch. And it's basically like cabbage and kale and Brussels sprouts. Um, so it's very crunchy and for me that is like the most important thing in a salad i'm a very texture driven person and so i have to eat salad that is crunchy um so i just keep that and avocado a little cheese onion powder oil and vinegar and whatever protein that i want to stick on top and that's generally what i have in terms of salad it's pretty quick um off menu recommendations on my end Nothing really. I, I mean, I am watching Game of Thrones, um, which started up a couple weeks ago, which I'm enjoying because we had mentioned this before, like you have a bunch of setup and you have to pay it off and they're finally paying things off, which is nice mm-hmm. to see. Um, I was talking about what, this with a different friend of mine who has in fact read the books and we both were like, you know, George R. R. Martin is by his own admission is a pantser which means that he keeps setting things up and not paying any of them off in the, in the series, which is starting to get a little frustrating for me uh, as, as somebody who likes to read the books as well. So, um, but I, that's what I've been watching on TV. I, have I been watching anything else? Oh, um, it is a, f- talking about Beauty and the Beast again, but it's actually a French version of the movie with Vincent Cassel and Léa Seydoux. And this is gorgeous. It is on Netflix and it is in French with subtitles, but it is gorgeous movie just to like watch. Like you don't even have to understand what is happening in this movie. Just watch it for the visuals. It is very beautiful. So that is my other off menu recommendation. Um, we don't have any new reviews, but we do have a question on the hashtag. Oh. Um, which I saw earlier, and I have not checked the email. I don't know if we have questions in the email. I checked the email. We do not. Okay. So the question we have for is, um, from Epic MP, 
and is it is it helpful for a hopeful author to have a blog? What are agents looking for if they have a blog? I'm assuming if the author has a blog. Um, it is not necessary. Uh, like I think I said before, I do Google authors before I request material. Um, and I'll check out your social media and your blog if you have one. This is not... Um, you know, like make or break. If your blog isn't quote unquote good enough, I'm not going to not request your material. This is just for me to get a sense of who you are. And, um, you know, it's just general research that I do before, uh, I go ahead and, and get in touch with people. So, um, a blog is not necessary. If you don't enjoy blogging, don't do it. A bad blog, um, you know, that you don't like, that you don't enjoy reading is probably nobody else is going to enjoy reading it because that will show through. Um, that you don't enjoy writing rather, um, you know, so not necessary, uh, fine. If you have one, um, you know, we've talked here before about platform and if you're writing fiction, um, it's okay if you don't have a huge readership or huge billions of social media followers or tons of blog readers or whatever, that's not important. If you're writing nonfiction, then platform is, uh, more important, but I mean, I think you can blog about anything if you want to. You don't don't feel like you have to have a book-related blog if you're trying to get published. If you enjoy cooking and you have a cooking blog and you want to link to it, fine. If you, you know, have a travel blog or, you know, whatever, um, it's not going to make enough of a difference for you to stress out about it. <laughs> like essentially, like if it's something you enjoy and you want to do it, do it. Um, Asians will look at it if they're interested in working with you. Um, but I don't think that it will be a make or break decision based on your blog. It isn't mostly because, so I think there was a period probably like five or six years ago in publishing where everybody was like, you need to have a, a presence online. And it's a little bit, they put, I think publishing put the cart before the horse in that case, because just because you have a large social media following doesn't necessarily mean that means that translates into sales. Like unless, unless what you're selling or what you're writing is directly related to your platform. So for example, if you do have a cooking blog and it's got a gazillion followers like Smitten Kitchen, then of course making a cookbook makes sense and you would leverage your followers for that kind of a thing. If you often this is more useful if you have nonfiction, but if you are a fiction writer, um, you do not have to have a blog. It will make no difference one way or another. If you like writing one, then sure, like by all means, keep that up. Like, you know, do you do what makes you happy, but don't feel pressured to feel like you need it. And honestly, you don't even have to have, as we've said before, social media. You don't have to be on Twitter or Instagram or any of those things. I do think having an online presence is useful in that, like, if you have like a very basic website with your name and contact information, that's kind of like like it's basically nowadays having a website is more or less like an online business card. It's just like a place yeah. to like find you. Having a website is basically like an online business card. It's a place that just collects the best way to find you, to find information about you. Like, you know, all you need is a basic bio, very short, 
your contact information. And that's basically it. Like, you know, and once you are published, then you would probably want to put links to where you can buy a copy of your book and maybe mm-hmm. a page about what your book is about. Um, and again, a contact, a way to contact you. But aside from that, like nowadays you don't need to be on social media. In my opinion, I think using social media as a way to socialize is fine. Like I don't use my social media to leverage business in any way. I use it to connect to other people in my community because writing is a very solitary job. Like you're generally sitting in front of your computer by yourself and you're, you know, so it's a, it's a way really to be connected with the community rather than having a platform. Like no one's going to buy a book from me simply because I have an enormous Instagram following. You know, there's there's yeah. it doesn't relate to my book at all. Like it's only if it's directly related to the content you're trying to to publish then I would say it's useful to build up a platform otherwise not a big deal. That's all for this week. Next week, we're going to be continuing our series on archetypes, and we are going to be talking about revenge and redemption. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter, or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com, send us an ask through Tumblr, or ask us on Twitter using the hashtag pubaskpubcrawl. Thank you guys so much for listening. Bye! Bye!